Welcome to the Sikh Messenger podcast series brought to you by the Network of Sikh Organisations. Over the next few weeks, we will be interviewing people who are engaged in addressing the issue of hate crime, be it from a policing or public policy perspective, or hearing from victims themselves. Our focus is on the implications for British Sikhs, but we will also be looking at the wider problem in general. This initiative is brought to you as part of the Catch Together Against Hate project, which is being facilitated by Gallup and has been funded by the Mayor's Office for Policing and Crime. Your hosts for the series are Tavleen, Fabaksh and Hadeep. This week we're delighted to be talking to Suresh Grover, one of the founders and co-directors of the Monitoring Group. Suresh has been a leading anti-racist advocate and campaigner in the UK for over four decades and has led campaigns to help the families of Stephen Lawrence, Zahid Mubarak and Victoria Clumbier. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're, we're, we're very uh, pleased that you could, given uh, your history of campaigning against racism in the United Kingdom, um, if we could, can we, can we actually start with your, your, your background, your early life, and, and can you tell us something about where you were born, your upbringing, and I believe some of that, much of that was in the north of England. Yeah, listen, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be on this um, discussion with Network of Sikh Organizations. Um, I was actually born in East Africa, in Kenya. We came into this country with my family via India uh, in 1966. I think it's really wet, really hard winter. It's the first time I saw snow. And my father had a friend who had settled in Nelson, Lancashire, which is about 35 miles north of England. And so we ended up there. I mean, East Africa was an experience because um, there wasn't any demarcation between different members of the Asian community. So whether you were Sikh, Muslim, Hindu, um, you settled together, you went to Gurdwaras or temples together. And I suppose there was a commonality that you was in a foreign country, which you still had the colonial rule. And growing up in East Africa was an eye-opener for me. Um, I was very young when I realized that we were different because if you entered into the European area or British farms, you were shot at. Um, so it wasn't as ruthless as the apartheid regime in uh, South Africa, but it was segregated and everybody had its place and you didn't interconnect with other communities, especially in terms of African or European. And the Asians were in a hierarchy which was just below the Europeans and above the Africans. Uh, so we left at a very uh, chaotic time, just during the independence struggle by the Kenyans and uh, about three years after the independence. You know, coming from East Africa, getting into Nelson, Lancashire, was a total cultural shock. And the education system was totally different in East Africa. Most Asians thrived in um, mainstream subjects like English and mathematics and science. The quality of education that we've been taught in East Africa was much, much higher than in secondary modern schools that we were forced into when we were very young. There, was only, there were only about, I'd say, 50 South Asian families in the whole of Nelson when we came. So when you look at the demographic of schools, there were only 12 Asians in a school of a thousand pupils no African Caribbeans at all. And it was it was really hard because the winters were very hard. People either welcomed you with open arms or they hated you because you were different. And in the North, people tell you exactly 
what they feel about you. There's no hypocrisy. So they say to your face that they don't like you or actually they are very friendly with you. Um, there's no gray areas whatsoever. I think I be started became, becoming conscious about who I was in terms of my identity when what is now known as packy bashing, but actually this form of racist um, bullying and violence against Asian community didn't differentiate whether you were Sikh, Hindu or Muslim. Anybody who was Asian was just called a Paki. Um, and Paki bashing started with the arrival of skinheads and whole classrooms, pupils who were friends of you turning against you in a matter of weeks. There were fights in the playground. Uh, I was picked on and it climaxed in me being stabbed by skinheads um, outside a cinema that I and my nephew went to. Uh, so I was stabbed uh, just before, when I was doing A-levels and went to the police, the police officer, very senior member of a police, uh, police service in, in Nelson, took a statement. But no one got arrested. It was never acted upon. And the bullying went on in school. And then we just had to come together and really from survival instincts, we just began to defend ourselves. Even when you were picked up in school and you were winning a fight, other white, other white kids would surround you and, uh, and you got beaten up anyway and you never won any fight. So it's only when we, the five or six of us boys came together and started defending each other that that form of violence, that brutality began to diminish. And it finished when one of my friend's schoolmates brought a knife in at school to defend himself. And it's the first time after three months of, of perpetual violence against us and bullying against us that the head teacher intervened. He could see that we were being beaten up all the time and there were racial abuse constantly being used. Uh, that he decided to act and try to expel uh, my friend. Uh, he didn't succeed, but for some reason, because these uh, racists realized that we had come together and we were going to defend each other, they began to stop bullying us. Look, you know, racism was really in your face. I mean, the woodwork teacher at school would uh, never call me by, by name, by my real name, Suresh. Most of the school students never called me by my name. I was called Billy for some reason, which I never understood. Um, whenever I entered the woodwork class, the, the woodwork teacher would say, look, here comes Tarzan's boy, because I was come from East Africa and everybody would laugh and they'd make fun of where I was born. Apparently, Asians and Africans are never born in hospitals, they're born in jungles or in sea and things like that, you know? So it's, it's in your face. And after being stabbed, I began to rebel and I just left Nelson because it, it, either I would have died or somebody would have been badly injured from, for, the, for, for me taking action to defend ourselves, you know. So I ended up in uh, London on my own, started working in, you know, when I was only 16, 17. And I accidentally discovered Southall in 1975. You know, it was, it was just growing. There weren't many people there, but the younger crowd was kind of dynamic. People were on the streets. And it's, as I, soon as I entered Southall, 
I didn't have to look beyond my shoulder. So it was almost as if I was coming home. So unfortunately for me, what happened was I came to Southall in August, September 1975. And I kind of started working, you know, rented a place in Southall. And then soon after, I remember on 4th of June, which is a Friday, 1976, I was coming to meet someone outside Dominion Cinema and I saw a pool of blood across the um, Dominion Cinema, uh, just outside Victory, what was then the Victory Pub. And I saw a police officer at the scene with a flat hat. I mean, we didn't have mobiles phone then, but on the radio there was this news that a young Asian had been killed. And I thought when I looked at the pool of blood, oh my God, I may be seeing the murder scene. So I just went out of curiosity, really, to the location, just crossed the road. And I said to the, um, I asked the police officer, I said, what happened? Because I could see a pool of blood on the pavement. And he said, go away, it's just Indian blood. And that really got me angry. Wow. And, you know, within minutes, I said, how can you say it's just Indian blood? You're talking as if this person's blood is not human. And he said, go away. I said, no, I'm not going to go away. I think what you need to do is, out of respect, put a cloth here so nobody treads on the blood. You know, this may be, I didn't know the word forensic scene then, but I just knew instinctively and, you know, out of common sense that you don't just stand in front of a pool blood with people walking by. So I said, listen, you need to preserve this out of respect. And he just walked away. He just ran. And there's only me and my friend. It's not as if there was a large crowd of people. And I just thought, not only has he said it's just Indian blood, uh, he just walked away from a murder scene. So I actually went to a shop which coincidentally was called Chuggers. It's, called, it's a photography shop now, but it used to be a cloth shop. So I got whatever cloth I could. I thought it, maybe it was orange, maybe it was red, I can't remember. And my friend and I just put a cloth over the blood with some bricks on it so people wouldn't step on it. And then the rumors started coming that in a good deep in Chanka, a young boy had been killed and this was racist as well. So I and my friend then wrote something on the payment, which I think was like, we'll get you, this murder will be avenged. Now, the reason why I did that was because of the experience of being beaten up. And when I came to Southampton in 1975, racism was really right. The skinheads used to come, beat you up, and then and then just leave, you know. And the people I'd speak, spoken to in Southall had school bullying, etc. And I learned about the busing that had taken place in Southall, where, you know, if if schools in Southall had more than a third of so-called migrant children, they were passed out. In fact, a young man called Abdul Malik. He was only 15, had been stabbed uh, in a racist murder in 1974 outside Greenford bus stop because he'd been bused. Yeah, so there was there were lots of stuff like that going on, and I just began to talk to young people because I was very young then. And when we when we wrote something on the pavement, people started coming out of the pub, etc., etc. We from two people by this must have been in the afternoon at one o'clock. It grew to about a thousand young kids by 7.30 in the evening, you know? Right. And people were talking, what would happen, what we would do, uh, how can we help the Chagga family? I didn't know the Chagga family at all. I didn't know who they were, where they lived. I, I'd only been in South for, as I said, six months, so I, uh, I, I hadn't grown up in South 
But this was on Friday. By Saturday, Sunday, things intensified. It was a really hot summer. Saturday, there were demonstrations. Sunday, there was a meeting of the IWA in, at the Dominion Cinema, which was run and owned by the Indian Workers Association. It was, it was actually the first building that was owned by an Indian community organization, I think, in the whole of the country. There was a meeting about racism, so we took over the meetings, and we have to start looking at what's happening with policing, not just of what's happening in terms of factories and schools, but what's happening on the streets in terms of what young people are doing, lack of opportunities, the growth of racism and all that stuff. And as we came out of that meeting, two white guys came out of uh, a car and said something like, Packies go home. So everybody started chasing them and it ended into a kind of chaotic scene. And we then, the police came, instead of finding out what was happening, they just started arresting people, arresting three people. And as they went towards the police station, everybody followed them to the police station. And actually, I remember on Sunday afternoon, we surrounded the police station. It looked as if there were thousands of people. Maybe there were only 2,000, but it seemed much bigger. Most of, most of us were either Punjabi, um, sea cod, or a sprinkling of African people, and a few young white people, kids, and we stayed at the police station until they released the three people. And out of these events came the South of Youth Movement, you know. And it had a it had a national impact because it got reported on the police, it uh, by, by the press, sorry, uh, but the press rather than acknowledging racism against the Asian Punjabi community in South of blamed it on the hot summer and said that somehow we were affected by the midnight, the midday sun, you know, so <laughs> not there at the time. I think I can remember the headlines in the sun which said that because it's hot, we Asians can't take the heat, therefore we rioted. I mean, just so that's <laughs> stupid because they didn't want to face that racism. It's really important that period because if you look at the context of 1976, just let me give you an illustration which graphically illustrates the kind of racism that existed in just one year. So if you look at February 1976, the National Front had started picketing outside Gatwick and Heathrow airports uh, because of the number of Asians that were Asian people who, had come, who were coming from Malawi, from Uganda and from East Africa and India itself. They didn't want migration and they were calling for open repatriation. In 1976, June, the Grundig strike had started which was yep. led by Asian women in, in print. It was a fantastic, pivotal strike for the first time ever led by Asian women. Although there had been other strikes before by Asian men before, which never got recognized, like the Wolf Rubbers Wolf in South or Parallel Government in West London or Imperial yep. Dark Waters in Leicester. But when we came, then Chagas murder came on the 4th of June, the establishment of the South of Youth Movement. Then, then in August, you had the riots in Nottingham Carnival for the first time ever. I think in August 76, you had Eric Clapton, who was one of the most famous, is still one of the more famous, yeah. guitar, uh, did his speech in Manchester talking about walks and coons, which is a, it is terms that I grew up with. Any Asian is called a coon. I didn't even know it, but it was derogatory, where he starts saying, you coons and walks should go back home and you shouldn't be in this country. And, you know, and, that, and that was a man, Suresh, whose whole career was based on rhythm and blues music. Yeah. Black music. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's staggering that he says that. in So that happens in August, and then in September, October, you have the National Front actually beginning to build a base and starting its profile electronically. And that's just 
you know, that's just my memory. I, I haven't even studied what happened in Zambesis or what happened in Zambesis. Quite pivotal period. So when we talk about the history of racism and the resistance by Asian and Asian communities and the Punjabi community in Southall and other communities across the UK, we always talk about the post-76 generation. But the context is much obviously earlier. You know, because and more often than not, Suresh, more often than not, what actually happens is when people talk about the anti-racism movement and the changes that happened, especially in the light of things like Eric Clapton's speech, what they talk about is the broader British anti-racist movement and things like Rock Against Racism. And they don't talk about the actual resistance and uh, new forms of organisation that people like yourself were instrumental in creating. They don't talk, actually talk about the victims of these hate crimes coming together and politicizing and, and acting uh, to combat racism. And that's, that's why your story, your testimony is so important. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, those testimonies, these testimonies are very important. They're not acknowledged. We haven't written about our histories as part of a problem. We need to write those histories. We need to tell those histories. But there are two real problems. First is when we talk about anti-racist history, it's really seen from a, a white perspective. So you talk about rock against racism rather than community defense campaigns and community self-organizations in areas like Southall. And then in the modern period, when you talk about race resistance, resistance against racism, you talk about black communities rather than Asian communities as if there is, there's a polarization. So there's a lack of acknowledgement about the resistance created by the South Asian communities in this country. You know, uh, And it's not about competing with each other. It's just being historically no. true about what's, what, what existed. And Southall's history and history in other in other in the parts of in other parts of the UK, where the South Asian community, the the Punjabi community, and the Sikh community, which plays a pivotal role in in creating organisations like the IWAs in that period, which were very 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 important, you know, campaigns on busing, on campaigns in terms of uh, housing, campaigns on getting fair wages and trade union recognition, really important. Um, the turban case, you know, soon be just before where the right to wear a turban when you're, you know, riding a motorcycle or a, or, or a thing. They're, they're pivotal campaigns in the history of race relations, but they, as you, you're right, you're absolutely right, they're not acknowledged either by the mainstream or by the left in the anti-racist history properly, you know? Yeah. Adik, did you want to just chip in quickly? Yeah, Suresh, it's been... Um... Uh, really remarkable just hearing your story and the kind of the challenges that you faced over the years and I hadn't realized that you'd kind of been witness to you know so many things and you've been stabbed yourself in, in some ways that empowered you and you kind of um, pushed back and were part of a, a movement for, for change. It, it seems to me that it's, it's difficult for people like me and sort of I guess the, the younger generation to kind of understand and fathom that period I mean we all, we've all heard of Paki bashing you know the murder of Gurdip Singh Jagger obviously a critical moment during that period and the Southall riots and the formation of the Southall youth movement and I, I was interested in the policy of busing that, that you mentioned as well um, in fact I think you know we, we actually do know somebody that was was bussed out of Southall as a school kid um, but I, I just wanted to think about Britain now it's a, it's a sort of very different place would you say we've we've come a long way when it comes to sort of the battle for equality that has been uh, enshrined in law through legislation you know we've got three Indians in the cabinet um, I mean what, what are your thoughts and um, how have things changed and have they changed for the better? To put it simply some things have changed for the better some things have remained and some things have got worse uh, there's no uniform answer on that, and I think people would not be true to themselves or, or to the current environment if they said uh, that things have drastically or qualitatively improved for 
for the Asian community or for other black communities in this country. I mean, just a cursory glance at, for example, disproportionality at this moment on how BME communities, and I hate that term, I don't want to use it actually. I've always never liked that term. Let me just say black, brown people and migrant people, it's just more simpler to say that. It's not the perfect thing to say, but I'll just use that term. Uh, you know, in the 70s, I never even called my salvation. We were part of the black community. The reason for that is really important because black was a unifying term. It wasn't a skin color for us because we realized that our struggles in this country, whether you were black, brown, or anything, were, had a commonality. We'd come from the global south, if I can call it, whether it was India or East Africa or whatever. We'd gone through colonial experiences. Mm -hmm. There was linkage to what we were doing in this country, to what happened in, in India, for example. The penal system that created you know, the anti-Sikh war, <laughs> you know, hundreds of years ago. The Udham Singh, who was part of the Jallianwala Bagh uh, massacre, had come and assassinated General Dyer in this country. And I actually didn't know that Udham Singh had written in his blood, I don't know whether it's a myth or not, after witnesses, witnessing the Jallianwala Bagh uh, massacre, that his murder will be revenged in his own on by somebody's blood. And I was writing that in South and not even knowing that history. So there's a commonality of indignation that takes place, even though there is hundreds of years that have passed. So Yeah. And we, so, we were all referred to as black in those days, Suresh. Oh yeah, so, I, so today, I was referred to as black. Just just to answer your question, I'm sorry, because I just took some time answering. If you look at the amount of people who've been stopped and searched in London in May from March to April, 21,959 young men have been stopped. 99% of them are from BME communities or black and brown communities. If you look at the amounts of people who are in prison in youth offending institutes, it's the gross disproportionality when it comes to black and brown people. Um, so yes, you have three members of cabinet and you have large sections, you know, and over you have representation in parliament. But in terms of ordinary people, in terms of working people, which is actually 80% of the population, I think things have got worse. And the gains that we made on hate crimes in the Lawrence campaign, which I was you know, part of and coordinated, and not many people know this, for example, uh, Dorian and Neville actually came to Southall and used to use our office as a base of the Stephen Lawrence family campaign. Dorian worked in the Southall monitoring group. And the experiences that we had galvanized in 76, 79, and 81 in Southall, we used in the Lord Stephen Lawrence family campaign. So Southall was a, a learning ground for many of the campaigns that came afterwards. The, the recommendation of the Lawrence inquiry, some of them are pivotal and very innovative in terms of definition changing legislation. If you look at it currently, none of them is being applied. So it, our figures show that from April to June, we got referred 347 cases despite COVID conditions. So hate crimes are on the increase. They're not on the decrease, right? right? No. This is in, not just in London, it's replicated across the country. We had a meeting with the mayor and the deputy mayor last week, and they confirmed that hate crimes are on increase, and they haven't said that to people. So we've seen a massive increase. And those hate crimes are on the increase against every community. A lot of Asians, Sikh, Muslim, Hindus are suffering by it. A lot of African-Caribbean, large proportion of people who are care workers are beginning to suffer racially motivated hate crimes. And the police are trying to make a demarcation between what they call racially aggravated and racial motivation to justify the increase, which is just semantic. I mean, what they're saying is 
there's a neighbor dispute and because of COVID, people are using racist terms. That's always been the case, you know? It's, yeah. it's a new phenomenon. So some things have got worse. Yes, we have representation parliament, but you know, we have to be honest with ourselves. We don't want representation simply because the person looks like our skin color. We want people there who can reflect our lived experience on a day-to-day basis and use parliament as a tool to improve the quality of life of people. And that's not happening in parliament. So, as, as you say, some things have improved, some haven't, and some have gone backward. Um, can we just go back again now to that period in the 70s after the, the death of Gurdip Chaga, and you were talking about Southall and the, the rise of the Southall youth movement. So w- what happened in 1979 and 1981, these incendiary uh, moments in, in black and Asian history in Britain, and in, certainly in, the, in, the, in, in Sikh and Punjabi history in Britain, um, what happened and, and how did it come to that situation? You can't separate. You're absolutely right. We, when we look at the history, and this is a living history for people like me and my generation, you can't separate 76, 79 and 81. There's a series of connected events. Really important to remember. The 76 have described the killing of Chaka. What happens in Chaka's case is the birth of the youth movements and South becomes a beacon for Asian resistance across the country. So people begin in other towns to replicate youth movements. So you have youth movements in Bradford, in Leicester, in Birmingham, et cetera, et cetera. So South was seen as not just a shopping area where large Asian migrants lived, but yeah. also uh, 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 the house, the platform, the beacon of Asian resistance in this country in terms of challenging racism. And what's happening from 76 to 79 when Margaret Thatcher comes to power is the growth of the far right and the narrative of xenophobia and open calls for repatriation of all migrants and immigrants. This is what we were called at that time, immigrants, which we were, but we were never seen as British Asians. So the National Front, which is the equivalent of the EDL and the BNP, was um, gaining electoral strength. And when the election was called in 1979, the National Front deliberately used the election period to go to so-called immigrant areas, have public meetings, and call for open deportation and repatriation of people. So they chose St. George's Day, 23rd of April, 1979, to occupy the South of Town Hall. And people mobilized, uh, local communities organized uh, uh, together and differently. So the South of Southern Youth Movement asked for its members to mobilize the Indian Workers Association. A lot of trade unions came on board. There was a demonstration a day before on the 22nd of April asking the council leader, which was controlled, leading council was controlled by the Conservative Party at that time to stop the National Front holding its public meeting at the town hall the next day. We didn't listen. There were about 5,000 people who demonstrated. On the 23rd of April, I can only describe this as a militarized police operation because when you look at the day, it is one of the worst terror nightmare days that I've ever witnessed in my life. From 11 onwards, you have the special patrol group and armed units of police forces uh, taking control from the local police division and creating a sterile area. They called it a sterile area around the south of town hall. So nobody could enter the main living parts of Southall in the center or leave from 11.30 onwards. So even if you wanted to leave, you would confront a cordon of police officers which were 4D, and if you wanted to go home, you couldn't go home. 
They started arresting the youth movement, peaceful pickets from 11 onwards. The meeting was supposed to be at 7.30. And from 11.30 to 6.30, they kept arresting people. It came into a confrontation when the National Front members, who no, none of them lived in Southall, were escorted by police from outside Southall into the town hall. Before they went in the town hall, they gave their high litmus signs and called for open repatriation. They went into the town hall. They actually threw a Daily Daily Mirror reporter because they thought Daily Mirror was supportive of Asian community. And when people tried to rush and uh, come to the town hall, the brutality, the orgy of violence that I saw, it's, 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 it's like you were occupied by a military. Uh, it it sounds Southall. like a colonial, uh, an it, image from a was, colonial story. Let me, not, let me explain exactly what happened because it's pivotal to the history of race resistance in this country. In a period of two hours, you had 800 people arrested. You had 345 people charged with various criminal offences. People who were arrested in were actually some of them taken to Uxbridge or, you know, six miles away in, in motorways and released. I was arrested, and when I asked for a solicitor, I was slapped and said, actually, I got slapped by a police officer who told me that I've been watching too many American movies. You know, that's the kind of freedom. Yeah. I laugh at it because whatever. Then you were tried at Barnet Magistrate, which is 20 miles over. We didn't have juries trying us. We had stipendary magistrates brought from Northern Ireland called the Diplo Courts during the Troubles to Barnet, special magistrates from Northern Ireland. And we had a conviction rate of 80% in the beginning, right? Boy. And on the day, they actually picked a number of places where they wanted to attack, the police I'm talking about. So one of the places they picked was the People's United Centre, which housed the reggae group Misty and Roots. And yep. other, other musical bands like the Ruts and the Clash, you know, punk yep. bands used that place as a sound system. They went in, three people down the gauntlet, Three down the stairs, everybody who came out of the party was hit by truncheon. They actually hit an ambulance driver, beat him up when he was treating another protester. He said, And then they went downstairs into the soundproofing system and smashed the misting roof equipment and actually used razor blades to cut the soundproofing system. I mean, it's just vindictive. And then a month later, the council leader agreed to demolish the building. So they demolished the first ever building run by People's Unite, which is a mixture of Asian, mainly African-Caribbean and white youth. And they yeah. got an OBE for community relations. So not only did suffer the brutality of that day and got criminalized, but on top of it, they actually legitimized and awarded the person responsible for carrying it out with an OBE. That's the kind of sickening, racist reality that we were facing on that day. Anyway, we campaigned for years on two issues. One was to get people free, have their convictions squashed, and the other was about getting Blair Peach's murderer. And I've been working with his partner, Celia Stubbs, from 1979 up to today. And it's only in 2005 the Metropolitan Police Commissioner agreed that somebody in the special patrol group, unit number one, was responsible for Blair Peach's murder. You know, when we went to the coroner, I always remember this, the coroner called Sir John, Dr. John Burton, did two things which are so scandalous, and, and there are books written on this, 
The first thing he does, he actually blames Blake Peach for the, his own death. He says that he had his cranium was too thin. It wasn't that the immense blow that was hit by the hit him. And yeah. you know, when the police complaint system raided the SPG offices, they found equipment which are totally unlawful. They have blamed Blair Peach for having a thin skull. And the second thing it did was that I want to create a hypothesis. So put forward a hypothesis hypothesis in, in the coordinates group, which looks at how Blair died. And he said maybe he was killed by one of his own left-wing friends to make him into a martyr. But there's no evidence of it. Goodness me. It's just systematic undermining of people who simply wanted to come out on the streets and challenge the vitriolic, xenophobic, wild racism of the National Front. And Blair was simply killed for showing a remarkable quality that humans have when somebody suffers injustice, and that is called solidarity. He was killed simply for being in South Wales. And, you know, how do you deal with that? And I think he was killed, and we've always said that, because he actually looked, he obviously had Maori blood. I've never met Blair, but I only saw this, you know, when he, when he died, and we ensured that Salvatore paid a respect to him, and we lay him in state at the Dominion Cinema, and thousands of people came out to the cinema, to his coffin, and paid their respect. Um, because he looked Asian, you know? He looked like a big guy with brown skin and with his beard and moustache. And, and I think the police didn't care who they were beating. They randomly beat up. I've never seen violence like that. I'm just shocked that only one person died. That's what's sh- shocking about the whole thing. I think we were lucky that only Blair Peach was killed that day. That's the only miracle that I can think of. Anyway, so 79 is, is a pivotal period in the history of race relations and the resistance and the challenge to racism where the Asian community, especially the Punjabi community in South Africa, plays a pivotal role. And I say that now, I mean, we didn't see ourselves as Punjabis, we saw ourselves as Asians or Black and whatever. But people have culturally, we were obviously Punjabi and, you know, even when we were fighting, the kind of music that we listened to was, you know, Vibar Singh Pradesi or this or, you know, whatever. So, you know, the 79 period, uh, we spent masses of time in terms of um, building up campaign to support everybody who was arrested. But as Thatcherism gained hold in terms of privatizing companies, in terms of attacking trade unions, which affected Asian communities disproportionately because most of our fathers or mothers were working in factories or in, 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 in the service sector like Heathrow, more and more people were getting unemployed. Police powers were being increased by Thatcher. And you had an explosion in 81 where there were public order um, disturbances in about 30 cities, principally to do with policing and poverty. And Southall had two what people call riots. So on, on the 3rd of July, a skinhead band um, wanted to play at Hambro Tavern and we'd heard about it. We kept saying to the police, you can't allow them. This is going to end up in trouble. And then we thought they weren't going to come. And then suddenly they turned up. They came out, you know, their supporters came in a, in one or two coach, one coach load. And they parked outside Hambro Tavern. They came onto the Broadway. They attacked a, an Asian woman. And then they started breaking the windows. We started, you know, fighting on the streets. We mobilized really quickly and we they started retreating because it was a, for us it was a, a pivotal period where we had to defend our communities and the defeat of that 
skinhead movement uh, meant that we've never seen skinheads or fascism in South Africa again. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that violence is the answer, but so 81 is a turning point for people in South Africa. Some of the gains that have been made of creating communities actually arise out of the 81 period. And, yeah. and if you put it historically, you know, our, we were recruited from Punjab and the Western to service the industries and repair the war-torn uh, economy of this country. Yes. We, our fathers and mothers worked in foundries, in hospitals, in the transport. We did the night shift, service industry, cheap labor, ununionized. We fought for the unions. More importantly, we actually created communities out of towns that were on, they were inner city conurbations, rubble, you know, yeah. on the decaying inner city areas, which nobody wanted to live in. So when you came to Southall, the houses were cheaper. Uh, and it, you know, irony is even during so called market economy, if Asians lived in one area, it would get cheaper, you know? Uh, yeah. So we created communities out of the rubbles of that industrial decaying areas. That's that's our yeah. story. And w- what did we have? We had the memories of our resistance in India or the Caribbean or Africa, and we brought our culture and we brought our collected memories to build communities. That's and we had resilience and we had fortitude, and we found strength out of adversity. That's actually what our history is, and people forget it. And both, and that's the pivotal context of the 81. So obviously it uses violence, but actually the context is us trying to live in this country as equal citizens, and not be, and we're not, we, we're not being allowed to do that. No. The contributions we make uh, to repair the economy of this country. It's a sickening irony, Suresh. I've often thought exactly this is what you've just said. Uh, Most of us were invited here to help build this country back up after the war. And the war itself saw, um, I think, over two million um, South Asian soldiers fighting for the Allied forces. And you had some of those veterans and the children of those veterans coming to this country and other black and Asian people coming to this country to do exactly what you said. And in doing so, they faced horrific racism, the racism that you and others sadly had to fight back against. And as you say, 1981 definitely was a a turning point. I remember as a kid, we lived, um, you know, 10, 12 miles away from Southall. We used to go there occasionally on trips in the 70s and to the Gudwara. And I remember a family came to visit us after Hanbra Tavern. And these young boys who I'd never met before, they were early teenage boys, they were jubilant. They were elated and they couldn't wait to tell me what had happened and, and how they had beat the skinheads. And so, I mean, even from my my at distance recollections, you know, I, I knew this was happening and things were changing. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Sikh Messenger podcast, be sure to stay tuned for the next episode in which we continue our interview with Suresh Grover and talk to him about his work with the monitoring group.